Living Corporate is brought to you by The Access Point. The reality is, this is the largest influx of black and brown talent corporate America has ever had. And as a result, a variety of talent entering the workforce are first-generation professionals. The other reality? Most of these folks aren't learning what it means to navigate a majority white workplace in their college classes. Enter The Access Point a live weekly web show within the Living Corporate Network that gives black and brown college students the real talk they need and likely haven't heard elsewhere. Every week, our hosts and special guests are dropping gems, so don't miss out. Check out The Access Point, airing every Tuesday at 7 p.m. Central Standard on livingcorporate.tv. Not a lot of black women and black men stay in the workplace. You know, attrition is as large of a problem, if not larger than retention is. And it's because you are inviting a different demographic of a team when you're inviting black people into the workplace, but you treat them and expect them to show up like white people and you manage them like white people. What's up, y'all? It's Zach with Living Corporate, and we're here, y'all. Um, you know, it's a new day, a new week, um, a new opportunity to, what do they say, get out there and make a change? I don't know. I'm not trying to hit y'all with nothing too generic. I am honestly, like, really thinking about this uh, murder trial uh, of Derek Chauvin um, for his murder of George Floyd. And. You know, folks have reached out to me and asked, like, okay, you know, are you watching the trial live? Like, how are you keeping up with it? And I'm conflicted, y'all, because work and life is exhausting enough. And it feels as if, you know, we're just leaning into trauma. At the same time, you want to know what's going on because you you want to hope that the outcome of this trial will be different. And then there's probably some level of just morbid curiosity as just to what's going on, right? It's just conflicting. Uh, for me, I've made the decision that I'm not going to be watching live, right? Like I may use Twitter to check in from time to time, but I'm not going to be consuming that in real time. It's almost like George Floyd is being murdered all over again. And these discussions become some litigation of his humanity rather than some true pursuit of justice. Even in the commentary from both the prosecution and the defense, both of them claim that this has nothing to do with uh, policing as a whole, but rather an individual. And so like even getting that bit of information, y'all, was frustrating. It's easy to look at individual case to individual case. It doesn't require any level of critical or systems thinking. It doesn't force us to investigate patterns of behavior or to connect common threads and themes. Frankly, it absolves us of any type of accountability and consciousness uh, that comes with examining patterns and themes. And it's just the safer thing to do. I want you to know if you're listening to this, especially if you're black or brown, that I see you. And I'm right there with you in being exhausted by the reality of white supremacy and not just white supremacy in the acts and the, the harms that are enacted upon black and brown bodies every day. But the systems that refuse to name 
the harm that white supremacy creates and sustains. It is exhausting. It is depressing. It is defeating. And my hope is that you find some level of release or escape or comfort in your day as we're constantly faced with these oppressive realities. I, you know, I'm really excited, though, like all of that being said about the conversation I had today with Mariah Driver. Mariah Driver is the head of diversity, equity and inclusion at Webflow. And, you know, we had a great conversation talking about a wide range of things um, from anti-Asian racism to anti-black racism to white supremacy as a whole patriarchy capitalism. The challenge that DEI faces today, the future of DEI. Um, we even talked a little bit about if she had hands or not. For those who don't know, like just black vernacular, if you have hands, um, that means you can fight. All right. I promise it makes sense in the flow of the conversation. Pay attention. You'll check it out. Look, we will be back. And I look forward to uh, you all checking out this conversation. See you soon. What's going on, Living Corporate? It's Tristan, and I want to thank you for tapping back in with me as I provide some tips and advice for professionals. Today, let's talk about a couple different ways you can use LinkedIn to find a new job. Many of us started LinkedIn profiles, filled them out, and sort of left them to die. We know that we're supposed to have a profile and that they can supposedly help us land a job, but we don't necessarily know how to locate the job opportunities that may be out there. So I want to discuss a few methods to help you throughout your search. You may be aware that LinkedIn has a job board where companies can post new opportunities. Most of us just come and search for a job title and that's it. But what if I told you you could filter your results by LinkedIn features? For example, you can use the filter on LinkedIn's job board search to find jobs only in your network, meaning you will only see jobs where you have a LinkedIn connection. You can then reach out to your connections before applying to learn more about the job and even potentially ask for a referral since we know that can make you more likely to land an interview. You can also look at the alumni connections you have for any role posted on LinkedIn to reach out and do the same thing. Instead of searching for job titles, you can also search by skills. So maybe you know there's a skill, function, or software that you're really good at and want to do more of in your next job. You can search for that skill to see what jobs are available. So let's say you've been in HR and you've gotten some experience with organizational development, but you want to get more. You can search for organizational development in the job board to see what type of roles may be available to do more of that. Or maybe you're in accounting and you became an expert on the Great Plains software. You can search for that as well. Did you know you can search for remote roles on LinkedIn too? Instead of putting your city and state in the location portion of the search, type in remote. If you're looking for remote opportunities based in your city, you can still search for the city and state, then click the remote filter in the options under the search bar. Just remember, this will show fewer results as we're narrowing it down by geographic location. Lastly, don't be afraid to search through hashtags like hashtag jobs, hashtag apply today, hashtag join our team, hashtag hiring now, and hashtag now hiring. You can also search for more specific hashtags like hashtag accounting jobs, which could lead to more tailored opportunities. The moral of the story here is that there are numerous ways to search for roles on LinkedIn. 
make sure you're taking advantage of all the avenues LinkedIn offers to help you land that new gig you're looking for. Thanks for tapping in with me today. Don't forget, I'm now taking submissions from you all on career questions, issues, concerns, or advice you think may help others. So make sure to submit yours at bit.ly forward slash tap in Tristan. This tip was brought to you by Tristan of Layfield Resume Consulting. Check us out on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Layfield Resume, or connect with me, Tristan Layfield, on LinkedIn. Living Corporate is brought to you by The Break Room. Have you ever felt burnt out, depressed, or otherwise exhausted by being one of the onlys at work? You know what I'm talking about. Hosted by black psychologists, psychiatrists, and PhDs, The Break Room is a live weekly web show in the Living Corporate Network that discusses mental health, wellness, and healing for black folks at work. Name another weekly show explicitly focused on mental health, wellness, and healing for black folks at work. I'll wait. This is why you got to check out The Break Room, airing every Thursday at 7 p.m. Central Standard Time on livingcorporate.tv. Mariah, what's going on? How you doing? Hello. Uh, you know, busy, busy time in the world, sad time in the world, but uh, I'm really glad to be here. Look, I'm, I'm glad to have you here. Now, of course, we're going to talk about, um, you know, your journey. We're going to talk about uh, Webflow. We're going to we're, we're going to have a conversation. I think considering the fact that we're recording this on March 18th, you know, I'd like to understand a bit more about, you know, how you as a as a diversity, equity, inclusion leader are processing the senseless um, white supremacist tragedy um, that befell um, that group um, that 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 that, that, ooh, that befell that group in Atlanta, and then two, um, you know, where Webflow is on creating equitable and inclusive spaces for um, their Asian and Asian American, East Asian um, employees, as well as what is Webflow doing to create. Um, or to make Webflow a place, a choice destination for uh, for that group, that community. Yeah, yeah. So I think first to just speak about um, you know the last twenty four, forty eight hours, um, and this is a peek into life of an EDI DEI practitioner. Um, is you know the violent and horrific attacks on the Asian community um, that happened, uh, the murders in Atlanta, um, the way that the media spoke about them, who was centered in that discourse, who was given, uh, you know, the benefit of humanity and bad days um, was heartbreaking. And I, alongside, you know, a lot of other folks probably had the first instinct to try to kind of suppress that that those emotions that come up when that happens so you know the first thing that I have learned to do is to just process it on my own first even if it's not um, an event that directly affects my the racial groups that I belong to I'm, I'm um, biracial but I identify primarily as a black woman um, and I processing it and creating space for that grief um, and that you know trauma witnessing that we do. Um, that was kind of the first thing that I had to do for myself because I knew it was going to be a long day of holding space for other people's pain and other people's trauma. Um, and I, I wanted to be able to show up that way. So um, 
that was kind of the first thing was just kind of recognizing, checking in with myself. Um, but I, the way that at Webflow we responded, um, and I, I said this to my CEO, I said, it's, it's, it's both heartbreaking and inspiring to see how good we've gotten at and how quickly we've gotten, we've been able to respond to these racially traumatic and politically charged events against certain minoritized groups uh, because they've happened so frequently that it's gotten to the point where now it feels like we can respond within hours in ways that we weren't able to do before George Floyd. And it was inspiring to see at Webflow, um, you know, a group of folks from our ERGs. Um, the first thing was checking in with our Asians at Webflow ERG group um, and their leaders and just, you know, acknowledging what happened, letting them know that the rest of the ERG leads were on standby for anything they needed, whether that was surfacing resources for managers, whether that was you know, finding trauma and healing specialists, we were there and just wanted to create that space for them, knowing that they were likely creating a space for their community as well. Um, so the first thing we did was checking in with them, um, asking what they needed. Uh, we identified a need for pretty immediately for some kind of space for the community to process and work through and, you know, start to heal from the events. And I think one thing that, um, I am beginning to learn on my own learning journey. Uh, we're all we're all on our journeys, even as EDI practitioners. It's one of those fields where the more you learn, the more you realize you don't know. Um, is that you know our Asian community was expressing that they are not accustomed to taking up space, um, and they are not accustomed to asking for help, and they're not accustomed to being burden that there's a fear of being a burden with their with their grief with their pain with their fear um even within their own group they recognized that so uh the first step i took was to to find a uh, trauma and heal uh, trauma and kind of racial trauma specialist who kind of helps create spaces for healing or processing especially for racially um you know, triggered events and violence. So uh, we did that for our for our Asians at Webflow Affinity Group. A few of them took the day off. Um, we educate. We sent. I sent a note to our managers with kind of a guide for how to respond to and support teams through a racial crisis or political crisis. Um, and part of that is acknowledging what's happened and pretty much every meeting um, and identifying the folks on their team who are at the center of harm, checking in with them, um, letting them know they can take time off, um, letting them know they'll take on projects that they have, you know, if they're meeting a deadline. So giving them that option, being really proactive um, and just really asking what they need versus kind of assuming what they need. Um, and lastly, our, our DEI council uh, came together and we created a list of resources. The first thing that everyone asks is like, what can I do? Where can I donate? You know, we kind of scramble when we're in the face of this, uh, yeah, hor these horrific events that we both could have and probably knew you know, we are, are, were predictable, um, but also feel very powerless in responding to. So we created a guide of resources. Um, a lot of them focused actually not on just, uh, you know, educating folks on what happened, but actually educating folks on the long and erased history of violence and anti-Asian racism in the United States and outside of the United States that only kind of bubbled up to the surface um, after COVID hit and after our last administration. Um, 
So we created that list of resources. We ended up publishing it publicly um, to share with our community to invite them in um, to kind of engage in this reflection um, and then also kind of propose some ideas for how to engage in effective allyship for that community. But yeah, that's that's how we responded yesterday. And I mean, the large, the biggest thing that we focus on in any event like this is just centering the needs of the community, um, asking instead of assuming, um, and then really, you know, investing the time and the resources into supporting them. And um, I think that's, uh, you know, that was our priority yesterday. And I was really proud of the team for mobilizing around it and getting all of that you know, all that together. And then our CEO acknowledged it in our all team meeting today, spoke a bit about it there. Um, and a lot of folks from our council also went to some trainings today on kind of how to engage in effective allyship and disrupt these, um, the kind of bystander effect of a lot of this. You know, what's interesting. Um, I was just talking to another leader, um, you know, about this very, this very thing, um, this just anti-Asian hate um, and, and, and racism and, and thinking through a bit about like systems and, and being a systems thinker. I, I think that I think that some of the challenge with like historical DNI is that it's so individual focused and not necessarily in not necessarily as thoughtful on the systems that we're trying to either shift or engage or interrogate to create, you know, impact. And so as I hear what you're talking through and, and, and the work that Webflow did for their own employees um, in creating that space, you know, I think about how, just how rare that is. You know, I, I've, I've yet to, you know, considering, um, you know, I'm a black man, I've yet to have anybody, I've yet to have any org, um, certainly not the org that I, you know, that I work at now, um, provide, you know, targeted resources for, you know, racialized trauma and healing. That's, that is unique. I'm, I'm curious, you know, when it comes to like investment in your group and your space, what informs that? Like, how, how do you get, how did you get the capital to even do that? How, what was the process for Webflow to approve that type of expense? Yeah, well, I think first we are, uh, Webflow is a um, visual development platform. So our, our goal of the product ultimately is to, you know, increase access, open access to building for the web, which is the world's most powerful medium that only a sliver, 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 sliver of the population has the ability to build on and for because it requires the ability to code for the most part. Um, or you go to a, you know, a Squarespace or WordPress or Wix and, and your, your control over what you're creating, what you're, you're producing is severely limited by kind of the constraints of that platform. So our goal is ultimately to democratize access to this to power, to opportunity that the web presents. And so um, when I first started doing this work, it was just myself. I, I started at Webflow three years ago and was on the marketing team. And this was just work that I had started doing on the side with my CEO. I was the first black woman to join the team. Um, and I, you know, it was the first, I had built up enough trust in my, in my leaders and especially my CEO that I was able to ask, you know, are we, are we planning on prioritizing hiring other black people or just kind of developing any strategy around diversity and inclusion as we started to scale? Um, and like most CEOs, I'm sure um, his answer was, I, I 
it's I'm thinking about it. I am I care about that. Um, and I don't know where to start or what to do. Um, and so how I began this work was actually just kind of in my 10% time working with him to figure out like, how, how do you go about building a diversity and inclusion strategy? How do you go about kind of, um, you know, even figuring out where we were? How do we, how do we know where we're starting from? And how do we like legally collect demographic information? And how do we, you know, prioritize, you know, diversity and hiring without, you know, perpetuating this idea of like, quote unquote, diversity hires getting a leg up because of their, you know, the way that they identify. So there were so many unknowns. And and that is I'm a I am an academic at heart. And I studied critical race theory in both South Africa and um, in Washington, DC. And so for me, this was a, a bunch of question marks. And I'm super attracted to question marks, it feels like a bit of a, a, a mystery and an adventure to kind of investigate. So I went down the rabbit hole of finding all of the resources, all of the guides, all of the discourse out there about diversity and inclusion. And interestingly, I was really disappointed by how by what I found. And it wasn't it wasn't to the fault of the creators of that content. I think it was it was more disappointment in, you know, I'm reading about these theories and about these practices and about these recommendations for from experts. And then I'm seeing in the workplace and in tech, that these are not nothing is changing. And so for me, it was this question of like, okay, so are we going to follow what everyone else is doing, knowing that no, the needle isn't moved when other folks are doing it? Or are we going to figure out a different way to go about this? So um, my CEO and I kind of, you know, he, for him, um, our mission to democratize access to the web, um, our core to that mission is diversity, equity, and inclusion. It's creating equity in the world, which is opening access to opportunities. It's, uh, you know, ensuring that ecosystems for creatives and for entrepreneurs are you know, valuing and respecting and uplifting everyone and not excluding anyone on the basis of their identity. Um, And just being representative of the world that we live in, which right now the creators of the web are not. Um, And so that is kind of the impetus is that he, and I think this is, this is the advice I give to all DEI practitioners who are just starting out is if you have to fight for budget for, you know, DEI, or you have to make the business case to the people in power at your company, um, that's, that's always going to be a a battle. Um, And so it is, I got very lucky that I was working with a leadership team, and especially a CEO, who inherently felt and understood the importance of it and felt personally committed to prioritizing it alongside the development of our product and our company because he did not see the opportunity for those things to be decoupled. So that's kind of where the impetus for this, you know, there's no question of do we invest in this area? The question is kind of how do we invest and how do we scale? um, And how do we make sure this is sustainable? What we don't want to do is over invest in the beginning and then have to kind of work back, you know, kind of take things off later down the road. So strategic investments um, have been a, a core part of what we've been doing. But you know, with every raise, you know, round of fundraising, we go through, um, we increase the amount of money that we're committing to these to these efforts. And it I have feel so fortunate that when I have come to gone to my CEO, our head of people, um, that it's never been a question of is this a worthy investment? Um, or is this, you know, is this for in this case our Asian um community at Webflow, do they do they need this? 
um, that's never been a question. So I've gotten very lucky in the sense that I have their trust to make strategic investments and that, you know, they're willing to and they understand the core importance of it beyond just kind of this nice to have. Yeah, you know, I think I've had conversations with other um, other women who identify as black on Living Corporate and they talk about their role as um, as, you know, diversity officers or diversity officers or in some way they're like the leader of people or but they they own their this is this is part of their role right and you know, a pattern that i've seen is that most of these roles they they you know they they churn out after about a year and a half two years because there just isn't that support uh, there's not that investment right it's it's almost like okay why did you even hire me if you're not going to invest you're not going to listen to things i say you're not going to take my recommendations um did it does it still does it feel natural at this point to be heard or was that something that was like is that still like a, a new experience and i'm not trying to perhaps i am projecting a bit mariah because i think about my experience in corporate america you know often i feel as as a black person even as a man I, of course i benefit to a degree from patriarchy of course um but as a black man like i'm not i'm not heard often right i have to i do have to feel like i have to kind of f fight and prove and 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 justify my stance on any one thing when I make a recommendation. Like, since that that seems to not be the case for you at Webflow, and I'm curious, like, is that feeling different, or is that are you accustomed to that now? Like, what is that like feeling that support that you're you're describing? Yeah, um, you know, I won't say that the workplace I'm in or any workplace I've ever been a part of has been fully has embraced fully uh, me, my blackness, my, you know, sometimes the hammer I take to the patriarchy and white supremacy um, and the systems that perpetuate both of those things. Um, I, I've gotten lucky in that I have a lot. Starting at Webflow early on, I think has been, you know, a, was a large, a significant benefit for me, given that I was able to, I have a, a strong foundation of trust um, with the people who have been there the longest and the people in positions of power. Um, and I think that, that that interpersonal trust is a huge, huge leg up. And that's usually kind of the barrier between um, you know, black women, for instance, and white male leaders is that there is, and especially for black men, that that trust and is inherently affected by these stereotypes of black women as angry and of black men as, you know, threatening. And so I think I started and I had to prove, I mean, I, I will say like I, I, for, for all of my career in every context, every meeting I go into, I go into it with, you know, maybe there's a Zoom filter, Zoom background, but the most prominent filter is honestly the filter on how I show up, how I speak. When I swallow my, you know, when I swallow my tongue, when someone tells me, oh, you're so articulate, which happens to me on a weekly basis. Um, so there are, there are things that I, I know the boundaries to my, there, there's, it's conditional. Um, and I won't say that it's conditional, like with my leaders necessarily, because I, I really do believe that I'm, I have, they have proven that we can have candid and honest conversations about how we work and what, what my role is. Um, but I will say in the workplace in general, I, that that filter, which is a survival mechanism, hasn't disappeared. Um, and I, I don't think it will for a long time. Um, 
I, you know, white people have to prove themselves to us for, for enough time for us to be able to let that one go. Um, but I do, you know, it is, it is something I, I don't, I still, I guess the question is kind of like, how does that feel? Does it feel different? Um, I still go into most conversations assuming that I won't be able to influence a decision. Um, and I won't be able to, you know, that my idea won't be taken and just, you know, assumed is fully thought out and fully strategic and run with. Um, that being said, so I am surprised every time it happens and it does happen more frequently, you know, f fortunately for me, more frequently than it, I, it has ever happened in my career before. Um, but I think, you know, there's a, there's a, a limit and there's, there's still, there's still a feeling of conditionality around kind of what it means to be a black woman or a black man in the workplace. Um, even if you do have leaders who support you and are willing to kind of amplify your voice and support your work, you're still having to prove yourself every day. Um, and you're still kind of conforming to the ideas of what, you know, of professionalism that white supremacy has defined, many of which of those ideals are not reflective of black culture and you know how I how I will and would be if I was bringing my full self into work um but I'm I do feel like we're starting to make a lot of progress in the way of kind of changing those norms um and instead of asking inviting black people into the workplace and asking them to change themselves is actually starting to change the workplace um and I think that's the kind of conversation that's where we are right now as an industry um and I think that's going to be the only thing that, as you hinted at earlier, not a lot of black women and black men stay in the workplace. You know, the attrition is as large of a problem, if not larger than retention is. And it's because you are inviting a different demographic of a team when you're inviting black people into the workplace, but you treat them and expect them to show up like white people and you manage them like white people. They can't survive. They can't stay there you're subjecting them to trauma every single day. Um, and so I think what, what we're starting to see is that that's shifting and that we're starting to acknowledge that leaders are have to adapt their workplaces to the needs of their changing demographics and diversified teams versus asking their teams to kind of conform to uh, the workplace that was once very homogenous. Goodness gracious, Mariah, you got bars? <laughs> don't, ask, don't ask me to rap. My brother, my brother will attest. He's like, please never do that. Man, if I didn't, boy, goodness gracious! Sometimes I just have to, sh I just have to wave my hand. That wasn't, I, I mean, amen for real. And I appreciate the candid answer. I think, um, so you, you, you're speaking to something that is ever prevalent, even when we get, you know, the small bits of support that we need to to be effective at our jobs, um, and navigate these spaces, which is just. The reality of patriarchy and white supremacy. You, you, and you start. You said that at the top of this. I'm, I'm curious. You know, where do you foresee diversity, equity, and inclusion going as it pertains to naming systems, naming, um, and naming ideologies that, uh, that that enable trauma, that enable harm for, um, for individuals who have been marginalized. Uh, for oppressed communities like do you do you see it continuing to grow in that space or do you eventually see like a crawl a clawback where you know we're, we're getting more into i'm gonna call it like this old like this conservative kind of whitewash dni that's frankly like you know diversity of thought heavy on unconscious bias 
um, high binary analysis or understandings of identity, um, almost like an ignore, almost like a, a dismissal of ethnic and racial identities um, and erasure of trans identities. Like, like, where do you see this space and this work going over the next, I'm just going to say like three or four years? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I, so there's are a few things I see happening. Um, if I had to describe kind of the current state of DEI and, and what this transition were between it's that for a long time, DEI has been, you know, kind of a check the box compliance driven in HR, um, affirmative action space. Um, and I, I talked to a lot of DEI leaders about kind of like what changes we're seeing, because we're all, we're all going through it. And all of us are like, you know, trying to figure out what's happening in the space and what other people are doing and what's changing and what's now acceptable and what we can ask for and what we can demand for our teams. Um, but I think what's, I think what's happening is it's a, you know, the DEI, quite frankly, used to center white comfort and it used to center uh, this idea that diversity, equity, and inclusion programs equally uplift everyone and they create a culture of inclusion for everyone and everyone benefits when we, you know, prioritize diversity and inclusion. And let's get real. When we start making, you know, like when we start prioritizing diversity in our hiring process and we deprioritize referrals because those are predominant those predominantly end up benefiting white men and you know whatever the homogenous group is on the team their referral networks are 99% similar so to be honest them us taking away saying we're going to actually deprioritize referrals because they're preventing us from you know driving equitable hiring outcomes that the you know the white men the white women who used to benefit from being able to like send a resume in of their friend and then them, their friend getting hired, they're not equally benefit. They're not, that's not comfortable for them. That might not in the, in that moment feel like this strategy is actually improving their life because it's taking away a level of power and privilege to kind of reset the balance. So I think for a long time, DEI was kind of confined to this, you know, comfort, this, this white comfort centered, compliance-driven, check-the-box, programmatic space. And I think now there are two phenomena that are happening I think are changing this. Number one, you know, Gen Z is coming in and Gen Z is loud. They're like loud and they are demanding and they are, you know, what a lot of people would call, quote unquote, the woke police. But I mean, they have a lot of Twitter followers. So like where, you know, people are taking them seriously um, and they want to see whether they're white, whether they're a member of a minoritized group, they want to see workplaces that are not just saying they're they care about diversity and inclusion, but are actually walking the walk. And when, uh, you know, when things like these shootings in Atlanta happened, I know for a fact that if I was to sit back, if our if our leadership team was to sit back and say, nope, we're not going to do or say anything, and I was to sit back and say, nope, we're not going to do or say anything there would be a lot of white people at my company who would have been making noise about the fact that that was unacceptable, that would have been, would have been saying that. And I think that, that that level of allyship and that amplification of white allyship um, and able-bodied allyship for our disabled community um, and even black allyship for our Asian community in the workplace, like we are starting to really hear and center, kind of recenter the focus so that white comfort 
and this compliance focus for, that for so long has prevented us from making any real change is starting to shift into more of kind of a systemic change focus, which is that in the short term, we are willing to accept discomfort. We are willing to accept uncertainty. We are willing to accept, you know, that we won't, our leaders may not always say the right things, but they're going to say something. Um, and they might be vulnerable about that in the process because we realize all of that is necessary to actually create a workplace where equity and inclusion are not just prioritized, but they're reflected in our outcomes and our hiring outcomes and our promotions, all of that. So, um, and and right now we're in this space of innovation, which is really cool. Um, and I think it's it's a little bit difficult for this to happen in HR, to be honest. I think that's what stifles a lot of innovation in this area in particular. Um, but what I'm seeing with a lot of other DI leaders is that number one, they're moving out of HR. Um, number two, they're getting a lot more backing when it comes to kind of financial backing, funding and investment. Um, they're given teams, they're given resources. And also we just have a community of DEI practitioners who are no longer doing this work in a silo. So we have other people to lean on and to collaborate with outside of our companies. Um, and, I, you know, we're, we're, we're really starting to rethink the things that we had assumed we had to do, which is like we're rethinking like our unconscious bias trainings, really the best use of our time or energy or maybe is it a more important for us to focus on, let's say, integrating inclusive leadership curriculum into our existing manager training so it's not a separate thing? Um, and I think things like that we're starting to really, we're starting to do more of. So I would say to answer your question about where, where, this, where this space will be in four years, I think that there's going to be a lot more money behind it. Um, I think we are going to see fewer white people in DEI leads uh, positions. Um, I think we're recognizing that, unfortunately, like you know, privileges is, is can can really prevent and stifle the ability to effectively do this work. And unfortunately, that falls on a lot of trauma for the for the people of color who are doing this work um, as well. But I think we're probably going to see a much more diverse slate of EID and DEI practitioners. Um, and I think that we are going to see this space transform into one that is more innovative, more creative, um, and less averse to conflict or discomfort or compliance, you know, kind of, and I think that's really how we're going to see change happen. Um, so I'm excited about that. I think we have a lot of problems, you know, we have a lot of barriers to overcome in between now and then, but I, I do think that the level of transparency we're starting to expect from companies, uh, will help drive that change um, and and make it no longer acceptable to, you know, say you're committed to DEI and have all white leadership teams. <laughs> uh, so a, a, a few things is the one I'll say this, the one thing you said that stuck out to me was this idea around centering whiteness in general and then white comfort specifically. Right. And frankly, it's what makes living corporate or what has made living corporate as a platform so attractive or unique to folks because we literally come on here and we name the things that your average corporate space won't name. I agree to your point around like, I'm so excited about Gen Z coming and I'm, I'm excited about our own generation too. Now, a lot of us are still kind of scary, but Gen Z is not scared. Like they come in, they're like, they're like, no, 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 no. I want the smoke right now, actually. And I don't actually care if y'all, I uh, want to fire me. I don't care. Like I'll, I'm working five jobs anyway. It doesn't matter. I'll go get money doing whatever. Like 
their their whole mindset and how they think about how just just how their folk their focus seems to be much more so much more civic minded and they have expectations even if even if they can't articulate the full complexity of a thing they 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 are resolute in what they want to see and are willing to like raise their voice to get that expectation to get that result and that's exciting to me you know i'm, I'm curious you know when we talk about and I look, you know, Mariah, look straight up. I'm gonna get y'all for those listening. I'm gonna tell y'all straight up. We had these all these questions. Mariah dropping some different kind, different kind of heat. I'm over here like, wait, I, now she got me going. I, I have new questions. So we're improvising. That's what we're doing. <laughs> doing a live. So, so you know, it's interesting though. Like, you know, you talked a little bit about inclusive leadership, and you talk about, um, you, you talk about, you know, integrating those, uh, those, those, those expectations just for you know everyone's day to day job is. You know, my challenge continues to be as we think about um, as we think about these organizations is what does it really look like to fundamentally shift leadership mindsets and behaviors? You know, like, you know, we you know, when you think about like a lot of these programs, yeah, you have ERGs and yeah, I might bring in, you know, I might bring in a speaker or we might do some type of event or we might, you know, do a happy hour or whatever the case may be. But, you know, we talked about the brass tacks of like really shifting and changing policy. And radically reimagining what a leader looks like in an organization, because that's how things change. But, but I don't know if I've I don't know where I'm seeing DEI having a strong voice in that work, the radical reimagination, or I'll even just say a dismantling of abolishment of certain uh, policies that really um, that that create harm and 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 or um, are just have s- such wide gaps that it's easy for them to be exploited at the, you know, to be, for, for them to be exploited at the expense of, of black and brown talent. Like, I'm curious about, you know, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, this is a, this is a tough area. Um, and I, I don't, I actually don't know that I have seen, I think the, the leadership piece is core to the ability for you know, underrepresented talent to succeed and to grow and for this work to really start to take root. Um, And I don't know if I've seen, you know, candidly, I I don't think I've seen any company get this right, like perfectly, like scale, like that, you know, scale this kind of new shift in what leadership looks like and actually hold people accountable for it. I think there's a lot of there's a lot of aspiration in the industry for kind of what we want our leaders to not just do, but, you know, the types of leaders we want them to be. Um, And, but I do think there's an appetite for it, both within leadership. I think I, you know, I thought we have a lot of leaders who are hung, you know, they're hungry for this information, this education, this growth. Um, What, for me, what it comes down to is, is to change systems and in this case we're talking about both kind of like processes and talking about behavioral systems the systems of behavior patterns of behavior um i studied psychology so this is this is where i am maybe bordering on pessimist realist but i don't believe that you can change behavior without changing incentives and without changing um you know without creating new incentives and getting rid and like identifying what behaviors previously were incentivized that are preventing progress in this area um, and how you create accountability levers for that. So I think that's, that's for me, what, where, how we start to 
move and again drive a systems change is not just focusing on changing the people because the reality is like you know if you're if i'm relying on changing people and changing their default patterns of behavior and changing their opinions and convincing them of kind of the moral or business case like you know, I'm going to be doing this work for 100 years and nothing is going to change. But I think what we can do is we can start to identify, you know, pe- that people's behaviors are guided ultimately by systems of incentives and rewards. So they are doing the behavior that's serving them in some way. And so if they're engaging in behavior that is not inclusive, that is perpetuating microaggressions, maybe they're, you know, hiring all of their friends, maybe they're only promoting the the folks in their team who look like them. Um, They're doing that because number one, there's no punishment for it. And number two, it's serving, it's benefiting them. They're getting to work with people who look like them and therefore they're more comfortable around. And so I think what what I'm trying to focus on is, and and one, I'll provide an example of how we're doing this at Webflow, is how do you actually change the incentives so so that inherently a manager is able to see and a leader is able to see if I choose this more inclusive behavior or if I decide to speak up against this pattern of hiring within our kind of homogenous networks I will I will be rewarded for that versus I will be told I'm slowing things down um, and so one thing we've done at Webflow just to start this process and again I'm, I'm very candid in saying that we have not figured this out and we have not gotten this right but um, is starting to integrate inclusive leadership as a core um, element of our career development paths for managers. So when someone is being considered for a promotion, they are at, like they are evaluated, not just on the core role responsibilities, but also their inclusive leadership assessment. So have you attended anti-racist? Like the bare minimum is like doing the, going to the trainings. That's like, you know, anyone can, you can, and on Zoom, I mean, you could not even be at your computer and be at the training technically. Like click, um, click the button and walk away. I mean, yeah, exactly. Like very low bar there. Um, but so it starts with things as easy, as simple as just like, may, are you putting in the time? Are you putting in the time to go to the things that you are literally required to attend? The next level is like, are you, you know, let's look at the, we're becoming a lot more transparent and frequent and accurate with our data collection. So let's look at your hiring patterns. Like, have you been prioritizing and hiring teams that reflect the diversity of your candidate pools? And have you been, you know, have you been working with the recruiters effectively to attract, um, you know, and make sure that we're advancing diverse talent to the pipeline at equal rates? Um, You know, have you been, who have you been promoting? How have you been supporting your communities? Things like that. Like, have you been engaged in the DEI council? So we look at all of those. And so the good news is that the, these now are not just like, oh, you're a good person manager for doing this extra work, it's actually an expectation for them. So we're trying to start kind of experimenting with this to see if if managers know that like this actually could help me get my promotion, even if it has to come from a very selfish place, we're selfish animals. That's just what we are. So might as well work with it. Um, I'm okay. I'm, I'm happy with that. So I think that we'll start to see that's kind of the positive side of it. Um, and then there's like, you know, the not so pretty side of it, which is that what the only way you're going to change this system and change kind of the status quo of of leadership is if you start to become intolerant to exclusionary, harmful, discriminatory behaviors. And I, I, what I say there is like, if there is a manager who has had two people on his team report instances of feeling, you know, either like inadvertent, you know, blatantly discriminated against or even just disrespected or even undervalued or not, you know, not heard or not 
recognized the same way as their colleagues and you don't do anything about it, that, that you're sending a signal to your team about what is, what is okay and what is not. And so that's where it's going to perpetuate itself. And that, that's kind of where the rubber meets the road and where it sometimes does get difficult for leaders to make those kinds of decisions. But ultimately, you're not going to be able to change the status quo without starting to really draw the line on, on what you tolerate from your leaders. Yeah. I love, man. I mean, you just, it's just real bars. And, and I'll say this is like white supremacy and patriarchy is so, so deep and entrenched in corporate America that like what you just described, folks would call radical. Yep. I know. (laughs) Folks would call that radical. And it's like, it's like, no, like it's actually not, but it is relative to this because just basic accountability. Yeah. Um. So so let me ask let me ask you like a a, a technical question. I press and I promise this is not a case interview, but I, I do have. This, I do, I'm curious about this case interview is a triggering word. <laughs> <laughs> I went through those consulting firm interviews. I'm like, oh man, brought right back. <laughs> no, it's okay. Put me okay. In. All right. Here we go. All right. Here we go. So what I'm trying to understand when it comes to incentivizing inclusive leadership behaviors. Mm-hmm for executives should it be a bonus that you receive or should it should it factor into your like bread and butter salary why also that's a good question um you know i think there so i think there are pros and cons to both i think the bonus system anytime there's a bonus system the thought the immediate thought that i have is like ooh are we just paying people to do like the bare minimum right thing? You know, like that feels a little bit to me like, ah, that's just, I don't know. I don't know how I feel about that. I think um, this is a tough question. I, you know, what I will say is you experiment with it. Um, I am a, you know, like no one has gotten, and this is where I come back to this innovation piece. No one has gotten this right. No one's figured it out. And so the only way we're going to figure it out is if we start trying things out, measuring the effectiveness of them, iterating on them, being open to being wrong, being open to having our minds change and doing it over and over again until we figure out something that's actually driving change. And like, we have a way to measure that. So, and to answer this question, I think that, um, you know, I personally might start out with a, uh, you know, when you introduce these new, and I think this is kind of where you get the board involved too, is when you introduce these new, you know, metrics for what it means to be a successful leader um, and an effective leader and an impactful leader um, that includes kind of inclusive behaviors um, that maybe you start out with a bonus system where you say, we're going to start rewarding this behavior, see how that changes their behavior. If it doesn't move the needle, then maybe you do need to go to a more kind of like, you know, like a a loss mindset of like, you're going to, you know, like your, your full salary is contingent upon you meeting these expectations. Um, So that's kind of how, and, and then, you know, see how it goes, evaluate it again, like get feedback from the leaders themselves too. I think it's important they get buy-in as well. Um, And then if that, if that's not driving change and it doesn't seem sustainable, then you can, you can pivot and shift. But I think the biggest thing is 
is being open to trying something out. And I think that's kind of where we get stifled a bit here is that if a leader, you know, if you propose that idea to a CEO, for instance, um, a lot of times they'll come back with like, well, what other company has done this and tell me, has it been successful? Um, Sometimes you cannot, there are a lot of times in DEI where you can't point to to a company that's done that. Mariah, I hate that. That is so, like, that's such a cop out to me. It's like, man, come on. Like before, I just, I don't like that at all. Like, yeah, it, it's so, and it's just so antithetical to the, to the narrative that tech promotes. It's come like, on. No one has gone before. And I'm like, <laughs> let's go where no one has gone before. And they're like, nah, show no me somebody I can gone. follow. So I need, yeah, I need to go down the path, you know, more trodden, even if it's downhill, like we, that's kind of, you know, that's, that's where we are. So I think, um, but I will say that I think that there's, there's, there's smaller steps you can take and if you have if you, that's kind of where this risk aversion comes into like that's the old school of DEI is there it's very risk averse it's like we don't want to piss anyone off we don't want to make any white people uncomfortable we don't want to you know risk uh tweeting something and some white members of our community saying that we're being like too liberal or too political or whatever like that that was the old school and we're moving into the new school where you have to be willing to take risks because that's the only way you're going to get things to change um and it's just making sure they're strategic um and that you're investing in the right place so you know i don't i don't think that i would necessarily recommend introducing that kind of bonus system especially at an executive level until you really really clarified like what you want to see and made sure that those executives feel supported in making those changes um, and feel set up for success because otherwise it could then backfire. And, and again, DEI could be seen as kind of like a, you know, ugh, check the box thing. Um, and, you know, but I will say money, people, people follow money. So I won't say that a bonus system would be completely off of the table for a road less traveled to experiment with. I respect this. Look, Mariah, I t- and I told you the topic, we, we'll get you out of here. But, you know, you and I just had a really good conversation. I, I hope that, you know, you come back because I've appreciated the dialogue we've had. And look, before I let you go, let me just ask you, what are you excited about with Webflow or for the next 12 months? And why should black and brown folks want to work at Webflow? Oh, this is a good question. <laughs> um <laughs> I'm going to answer the second question first, because this is the one I'm most hype about. Um, We have a really, so for black and brown folks, this is my, like, this is my pitch to work for Webflow. Um, Number one, we are a remote first company with great perks and everyone likes perks. Um, Number two, we have an incredible, we call it, so we call our, what folks typically name employee resource groups or ERGs, we call them affinity groups. And we have an affinity group called Blackflow. Um, and it was actually our first affinity group that started. Um, and leaders are paid for this affinity group to do the work in this affinity group. Um, the group is funded. Uh, we, this group is so fun. This group is like, we have these coffee chats and we actually had um, a coffee chat trivia one, I, forget, I think it was during Black History Month. And the leaders planned it and it was like a guess. We each had to submit a baby photo and the game was like, guess whose baby photo this is. <laughs> and That could have went left. Yeah, it dawned on me that this was the first time that I've ever played a like, guess whose baby photo this is with any level of confidence that I wasn't just going to be found out immediately because I was like the only brown and I'm biracial. <laughs> like my proximity, yes. my proximity to whiteness when I was a baby was like very, very close. Okay. So, 
but it was still not, you know, in every other game like that I played, it's like me and a bunch of white people. And they're like, Mariah, oh, like, wow. Good. Something you know? tells me this might be you. Yeah, Sherlock. Um, so for, and I, I said that at the start of the game and everyone was like, damn, like that's, this is the first time I've played this too. And that's the case. Um, that being said, we still like, I got pretty much like every light skin baby. Everyone guessed it was me. Um, obviously it was not, it's not me, but still it's like, you know, you could, you, you know, it is, you still don't get away with that. You know, the, the guessing doesn't get any better necessarily based on the group, but I will say our black pill group is amazing. We have, um, our leaders, Sean and Amina, um, have just been like, they just create a great space. We've grown our black, um, uh, our black employee base from I think it was four percent to almost seven and a half percent in about six months under six oh y'all months. actually doing work over there okay so we're yeah when we say like black lives matter we are literally like they matter so much that oh we are actually going to hire black people um so number one like we have a very incredible community of black um and BIPOC folks at our company um, who are also just fun, you know, like I think, you know, during a lot of the last summer, like we just needed a space to just be black and to like, say like, oh, this, guess what this white person said to me today. And like, sometimes that's just what you need. So the group is amazing. The group is, I mean, everyone who's been, everyone who's joined has said this is the first time they've been a part of a group like this. Zero um, percent attrition from anyone in our black affinity group or any of our affinity groups. So if you need a case for why ERGs are worthy of investment, you know, cite the fact that we have not had a, out of anyone who left the company, not a single person has been a part of one of our affinity groups. Um, and then I think what I'm most excited for, so that was just a piece of it. I'm just like pitching little black, taste. Okay, black yeah. folks to come. Yeah. But you have, you had to join to figure out the rest of the fun that black flow does. Um, <laughs> I think uh, what I'm most looking forward to for Webflow over the next 12 months, we are um, we are really, really doubling down on our investment, not only in DEI, but also in accessibility um, and in just uh, social impact efforts in general. Um, it's a, you know, a large sum of money, which I can't announce now because we will be announcing it later, but um, we're just we're we're investing a lot of money we're putting our money where our mouths are um we are investing in our ecosystem because we realize that like just you know just focusing on our internal employee base is not going to move the needle on you know systemic inequities um within the creative space that we're serving as well um and then i think in general i'm just i i'm really excited about how collaborative this work has become um we have a dei council with five executive sponsors um, and 12 members of our team um, who are also paid. Um, we also comp we compensate everyone who's doing DEI work in addition to their normal job. Um, and we have you know a ton of work that's going on on that side. We have an accessibility task force that's doing a lot of work and a working group dedicated to that. So it just feels, I feel this momentum um, where all of those kind of, oh, I would like to do this, but, you know, those buts of like, I don't have the time, I don't have the resources, I don't have the bandwidth, Not I don't have the people, those are all gone right now. So I, I truly do feel like we are on this path to like completely demonstrate that, you know, a, a company that started out with white leaders and with majority white employee base can reflect the diversity of the world that we're serving um, in not only 
our internal community base, um, but in our leadership levels, in our customer base, I think we are on a path to do that. Um, and I am excited about it, scared about it. Um, <laughs> but I think I'm just, you know, I think what's most exciting is that I'm working with people. I feel like I'm part of a team um, who's all motivated to change and risk things and try things out and take that road that no one's ever taken before and hopefully start to show other companies what they should and can be doing. So I'm excited about that. My goodness, Mariah, like, you know, you really have a knack for this whole like speaking thing. You should like do this more often. Like, you know what I mean? I mean, you know, like, I don't know, maybe if you were like the head of diversity and inclusion for Webflow, I don't know, something like that, like where you can really speak because you're, you're, you have a knack for this. It's my, it's my honesty. I think I think I have a, my my mom when I was growing up was always a little bit worried about it. She was like, "You have a big mouth and you have no filter, and that's a bad combination." <laughs> well, now look, Mar like, now Mariah, do you have? Do, here's no. Here's the question: Do you have hands? Oh, I have hands. Yeah. You have hands work. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Your hands work. My hands work. Yep. <laughs> yep. They work. Mariah, this has been fun. I appreciate you. Um, listen, y'all, y'all heard this incredible interview with Mariah Driver of of Webflow. Make sure you check out the uh, links in the show notes. Mariah, look, you're a friend of the show. I hope you come back for a part two, three, four, five, something, because this was incredible. And uh, just thank you so much. Thank you. This was fun. I'm definitely down to come back and get some more, do some more pew, pew, pewing. <laughs> Dropping the bars. My brother's going to be like, you're so embarrassing, Mariah. So I'm going to take the mic away from her. But yeah, this has been a pleasure. And I love, I love going off the transcript of questions. So I appreciate you flowing with me on it. No problem. Uh, we'll talk to you soon. All right. Thank you. Bye. Peace. Living Corporate is brought to you by the Leadership Range, a podcast within the Living Corporate Network, hosted by globally certified and Fortune 500 executive coach and leadership development expert Neil Edwards. The Leadership Range is focused on having real, raw, soulful and accountable conversations about inclusive leadership, allyship, professional development. Every week is a new episode with new learning and new actions to take on to grow inclusively. Make sure you check out the leadership range everywhere you listen to podcasts. And we're back. Y'all want to thank Mariah again for being a guest on Living Corporate. Shout out to Webflow, the things that they're doing over there. Shout out to, you know, everyone speaking truth to power and really taking risks, right? Taking risks. The era of um, trying to walk this line or, you know, balance or something, you know, it's we're past that, y'all. <laughs> and the thing about it is history is cyclical because we've been past that for over 100 years, 150 years. But we're really past it. And if you're hearing this, you know, please take this as encouragement to use your voice, use your power, use your platform whatever that may be, be it your board seat, be it your nine to five job, be it your, your the, the blog that you write, be it your LinkedIn page, be it your Twitter account, be it, you know, the, the dollars that you have, be it the time and the talent that you have. Use it to push back against systems that continually oppress us. Right. Use it. Use whatever you have. That's the only way we're going to get free. Now, I also recognize a lot of us don't necessarily want to be free. A lot of us want to be white. <laughs> we want to be in the position of authority and power. We, we don't necessarily want to share 
We simply want to be in the position that we see the majority group in so that we can control and dictate and command. But for those who are passionate about true freedom, who are passionate about real equity, who are passionate about dismantling systems, this is the season to step up and do something. Do something that may scare you a little bit. Step out of your comfort zone. Challenge yourself. Push past your own fragility. Push past your own insecurity. And do it. Until next time, this has been Zach. Catch y'all later. Peace. Living Corporate is a podcast by Living Corporate LLC. Our logo was designed by David Dawkins. Our theme music was produced by Ken Brown. Additional music production by Antoine Franklin for Musical Elevation. Post-production is handled by Jeremy Jackson. Got a topic suggestion? Email us at livingcorporatepodcast at gmail.com. You can find us online on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and living-corporate.com. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned.